with you this morning. Um, something you should know about me, I am a sucker for uh, when Scripture hands me one of those passages that is like not able to be passed up. I didn't intend to actually preach on 1 Kings 19 this week, um, but when I got to the end of 18, and I saw 19 just sitting there waiting for me, it's like, how can I not do that? Uh, it's like, it's just drawing me in. So I think I said last week that 1 Kings 18 was one of my uh, favorite passages in all of Scripture. 1 Kings 19 is one of my favorite passages <clears throat> in all of Scripture. <laughs> it is filled with uh, the drama is at a, um, a gut level here. Um, we see an Elijah from last week. If you uh, were here last week, you know, we talked about Elijah like on that mountaintop, literally calling down fire from heaven. He's at his A game, and he is just, I mean, he is in the midst of God's will if there was ever a man in the midst of God's will, and he's got to be riding high in that moment. And then you quite literally turn the page to the next chapter, 19, and it begins with him on the run. And uh, there's a bit of a whiplash from uh, last week to this week uh, in terms of his uh, psychology and his psyche. Um, I had a friend this week, in fact, who I was talking to, and uh, he admitted to something similar, and I was thinking of Elijah as I was talking to this friend, and he said, yeah, I, I was like doing so well this week, and then I had this conversation with someone, and it was like all of a sudden, I, I thought I was so strong, and then I'm just kind of at the bottom again. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way in life, uh, but my guess is you have. Uh, well, we have here in front of us Elijah, Perhaps one of the, not perhaps, one of the most important figures of the entire Old Testament. Uh, a man of God, if ever there was a man of God. And we see him last week at his highest, and this week at his lowest. Um, before we get there, let's begin with some prayer. <clears throat> God in heaven, <clears throat> we come seeking you much like Elijah was seeking you, and he found you. And God, in this place, we ask that you show your face to us too, that you come and you be present and that you speak to our hearts and that you comfort us with a peace that you can only offer. God, we give you praise and we give you thanks for your presence in our life. And we give you praise and we give you thanks for the presence of other believers who comfort us along the way. May we continue to cultivate all of those relationships, God, and may we know that we are not alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, the title I'll come to in a minute, and you'll understand where that came from. It's probably a little too clever, if I'm being honest. Uh, uh, we, have we played the game Two Truths and a Lie? Do you know this? It's where you tell two truths uh, and then a lie, or a truth, a lie, a truth, or a, a lie, truth, truth. 
in one of those orders, and then uh, the person has to guess which one of these uh, is not true, right? Uh, we get three statements from Elijah at some point at, uh, in verses uh, 10 and, and 14. Don't skip ahead, though, uh, in which he tells us two things that are definitely true, and then one thing which is, is not exactly true. It feels true to him, uh, but it's not exactly true. But we'll get there. I simply want to read the passage today. Um, one of our youth asked this, we did, a, we did a Hot Topics and Hot Pockets event this last Wednesday, which is my favorite event uh, like of the, the year, uh, where the youth submit like all these great questions. And, and then we sit and we kind of talk about like possible answers to these great questions. Uh, and I always tell them, you know, I wish the adults asked as good questions as, as you all ask. And, uh, and then they laugh, and I'm like, no, seriously. <laughs> and then, uh, so one of the questions was, um, how can we read scripture without getting bored? Um, just throwing that one out there. And the answer is uh, multifaceted. And then I read passages like I do today, and I think, boy, how can you get bored with something this insightful? There is something going on here that is uh, beyond just your average literature. And so I want to dig deep. I want to jump in. I just simply want to read our story today and comment as we go through. You already know the context. He has, Elijah has uh, had this wonderful experience, and now uh, it turns out he has, well, if you could recall, I haven't said this part yet, he slaughtered those 450 prophets of Baal, you remember this? Uh, I mentioned it was a proper Old Testament ending to the story, filled with gruesome violence. Uh, and, well, this, as you might imagine, has made the people in charge quite mad. Uh, namely, Ahab and Jezebel uh, are, are upset with Elijah at this point, which is where we pick up our story. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. By the way, if you don't have your Bibles open, uh, make sure you do. First uh, Kings 18 or 19 because uh, we're reading through it here. Um, but if you didn't catch it, Jezebel is threatening Elijah with his life and saying, this is going to happen, and it's going to happen really soon. It's a little surprising Elijah responds the way he does. It's worth asking why, and I don't know that we get a full answer. Um, he has literally just called down fire from heaven and slaughtered 450 other people you might think, well, now we just need to turn our attention to Jezebel and Ahab and finish the job. But that's not what he does, actually. Instead, what we see is this in verse 3. It says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. And so here we see a man, it says, who is afraid. I want you to know I, I reserve no judgment or condemnation for Elijah, if only because neither does God. Uh, throughout this entire passage, we don't see God condemning Elijah. I do think he operates in a way uh, in this passage that isn't fully in step with what God desires for him. 
However, God does not come alongside and, and chide him for this. Instead, we see a God who comes alongside and feeds him, a God who comes alongside and whispers to him and is present to him and offers him the solace that he's looking for. It says he uh, went to uh, Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. This is because uh, Ahab and Jezebel, well, they're king and queen of Israel. And, uh, and so he flees Israel, and he heads to Judah, where he, it says, drops off his servant there. And then he finds himself in isolation, which is not where he should be. And the story continues in verse 4. And he goes by himself now, and he went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I said uh, last week, we see Elijah at his highest, right? And we did. He's, uh, boy, that Pentecost fire, I mean, he, he had it. And now I said in this passage, he's at his lowest. And it's harder to get lower than the phrase we just read, in which he asks that he might die. And he says, it's enough. I'm done. I'm tired. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of these people coming after me. He said, I just want it over. He says, I'm no better than my father's, which is an interesting phrase. And what I take this to mean, uh, and any number of other commentators uh, do as well, uh, is actually a reference to his prophetic profession. A prophet is in the task of being God's mouthpiece and speaking the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord is what the prophet says, right? Thus says the Lord. And often, um, thus says the Lord is a hard thing, and they, they say the hard things, which means they often get the pushback, right? And so uh, he and his fathers before him and his fathers before him, as far back as Moses himself, are prophets who often um, come to a place where the burden of their ministry is just too much to bear. And so if... I'll just read it for you. Back in uh, the book of Numbers, we actually see Moses doing this exact thing. And so in Numbers chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, Moses has been in the wilderness. He himself has seen God. He has uh, come down the mountain uh, glowing. He's, uh, he's received the Ten Commandments. I mean, he's had all of these amazing experiences. And then we even find Moses, this other tremendous man of God, saying to God, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, Kill me at once if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. And here again, a man of God, Moses, of all people. Here we've got Moses and Elijah, like quite literally the two chief prophets uh, throughout our Old Testament. The two people who show up to Jesus in the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration. And here we have them both confessing 
the burden of their ministry, the task that God has called them to in life, a task that they've risen to and they make the pages of history for, it has just become too much. And they're, they are, they are uh, under this weight that is too much to carry. And so what does God do here? How, how, how does God meet Elijah in this place? The story continues. And in verse 5, we find this. Elijah laid down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, what happens? An angel. An angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, Mount Sinai, the Mount of God. And what happens here, in my mind, God does not come to, to, to Moses or to Elijah here uh, and say, how dare you, or you have no clue. He comes and he recognizes the humanity of this man, a man who he's asked to do some really hard things in his life. And Elijah has risen to the task any number of times. And this time, for one reason or, other, or another, it's just too much. And he goes out in the wilderness to die. And what does God do? God meets him there with an angel. The angel provides food. The angel provides water, resources. But the angel does what? The angel also touches him. And there's something about that touch, that presence, that connection with Elijah that I think is really important in this passage. Because it's not just that like, food shows up out of nowhere. It's that God shows up in the form of this angel and touches him and is present with him and speaks to him. And he is not isolated and he is not fully alone in this place, even if he feels like it. But instead, he has the presence of God. Story continues, and in verse 9, we pick up where uh, we read uh, this morning. And it says, There he came to a cave, there being the Mount of God, the uh, Mount Horeb, what is also called Mount Sinai, the very place where the Ten Commandments happen, the place where Moses goes up and, and takes the Israelites to the base of, like, all, like there's all sorts of Israelite history sitting in this phrase, right? And what we see here is Elijah kind of replaying a little bit of this, uh, this Moses story that you may or may not know. And uh, he is something of the next Moses in this place. And as he does so, he, he, well, he plays out the story a little differently. And so he comes to the cave and he lodges in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God is going to ask him this exact question with these exact words twice. And uh, what I want you to pay attention to is what, what Elijah says in response. So what are you doing here, Elijah? Right? 
There's a great question, by the way. Uh, this is one of the, I, I think I actually preached on this before, and, and I really leaned into that question, and I asked you, like, what are you doing here? Which is a great question, but uh, not the one I'm asking this morning. He's being asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? And his answer is, verse 10, two truths and a lie. He says, one, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. By which he means, I have quite literally uh, gone to bat for you, God. Uh, I have uh, single-handedly gone up against 450 prophets of Baal uh, and succeeded uh, in calling down fire, slaughtering the, uh, the prophets, uh, and doing what you would have me do. I am very jealous for you, is what he says. Number two. He says, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. This too is true. They've done these things. And this, of course, has displeased God. And it has uh, been the whole reason why, he has, why Elijah has to be jealous uh, for the Lord, right? And so Israel has been, so he has been jealous for God. Israel has been misbehaving. And then he says, I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. People do seek his life to take it away. That part's true. It's the first half, however. A different rendering of this uh, better emphasizes Elijah's plight, in which he repeats the word I unnecessarily. He says, I am alone. I am alone here, and these people are out to get me, and they are seeking my life, and they want to kill me, right? And I'm alone here, God. And you can almost see him angry, right? This might feel true uh, to Elijah. I have no doubt about that. And I do not offer judgment against him or condemnation against him. But there are a number of ways in which this is not true at all. And God's going to answer this heart truth that is seemingly true for him and try to get him to a place where he is understanding a deeper truth. And so what happens next? What happens next is um, the passage that we're actually most familiar with here. And it starts in verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. The voice says this. And behold, the Lord passed by. A great strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake came. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire came. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. Right? What a gripping scene, right? I mean, can you picture yourself in this place? Can you put yourself in the shoes of Elijah? And this wind whips by and you're waiting for God to be in that wind. God's not in that wind. And the earthquake starts shaking the rocks, right? 
and you're thinking, okay, here's God. God is showing up in this powerful way. I, I need this God. And God's not there either. And then the fire comes, and Elijah says, been here before. The fire was definitely where God was a chapter ago. And God was not in that fire, though. And instead, everything comes to a hushed silence, right? And nothing's happening. And here's a low whisper. And the whisper says, what? It just simply repeats what he's already asked. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah, right? So he's standing at the cave, and behold, there came a voice, and it says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God shows up after Elijah says, I'm alone. I'm all alone out here, right? And now God repeats himself, and he says, I'm here, and what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Let's pay attention to Elijah's response this time. Verse 14. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. True. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. True. And I, even I only, am left. I am all alone, and they seek my life to take it away. Has anything changed in his life? Yes, God did show up, right? Has anything changed in his heart? Not exactly. He's still feeling this sense of isolation and this sense of being alone in the world. He has just experienced God in a way that only you and I could imagine, like we would love to experience God in some of the ways Elijah gets to throughout his life, including this very moment here. And even in this moment, he's crying out, I'm all alone, I'm all alone. It's not unlike Jesus on the cross, Jesus, God in the flesh, shouting out, what? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Where are you in this moment, right? Jesus surely knows that God is present in this moment. But even Jesus can cry out in this way which is also why I don't condemn uh, Elijah for doing so as well. And there are times in your life, and there have been times in my own life, where I'm crying out, I need somebody. I need something. I sure feel all alone. The story continues, and uh, God responds to this. And once again, for a third time now, so if the first time God meets him by sending an angel, the second time he meets him with the still small voice, now we see a third time a way in which God responds to Elijah's lonely situation. And what do we get? 
some commands. He gives them some commands uh, of like a purpose and a mission to do something, which we all need in life, right? We need a mission. We need, we need a reason to keep taking steps and to, to get up every morning. And, and we need to feel like, yes, God has given me a task for this day and I'm ready to do it. And so this is what God gives him first. He says in uh, verses 15 and, and following, the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, uh, you shall anoint him to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah. By the way, Aaron, kudos on the pronunciations during the. <laughs> I g- I gave you this passage, and I, you handled it like a champ. Uh, this, so go anoint uh, Hazael, go anoint Jehu, and go anoint Elisha. This is his task, right? Um, this is a response that has a few parts to it. So he's given him a mission, but in the person of Elisha, he's given him not just a mission, but a friend, Right? He's given him a companion, somebody to do ministry with. We're going to see this next week because, once again, I'm a sucker and I want to keep going with 1 Kings 19 here when we get to the Elisha story. Save that for next week. But uh, in the meantime, it's enough to know that God does what? God meets Elijah's loneliness with a person. And he gives him Elisha, a companion to walk with him and to minister with him and to speak the word of the Lord with him and to carry him up when he can't carry himself. But it's actually not just Elisha. The passage goes on, and if we skip down past the death part in verse 17 where all of these people are being put to the sword, we find this in verse 18. He says, Yet... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. What we find here is it's not just Elijah and Elisha against the world, because it sure feels like that sometimes. It probably feels like that to you sometimes, where it's you against the world or you and one person against the world. And here God reminds Elijah, that is not the case. First of all, the God of hosts, which is a God of the armies, is on your side. It's really important to remember this piece. And there are 7,000 people waiting for Elijah who have not uh, bowed a knee to the God Baal, right? And these are people who can support him and come alongside him, and rally around him. And so what I would want you to know this morning is that Elijah's experience is a fully human experience. And most of us in this room have had it at some point. We feel like we're all alone. We are not meant to live this way. God says one of the first things... The the first thing he says that is not good in our Bible is in Genesis 2. Everything to this point, it's good, it's good, it's great. He's he's creating, and then he says, it is not good. 
And what is not good is that Adam was all alone, right? He says, it's not good, Adam, that you be all alone. Loneliness and isolation, being a lone ranger, being somebody who's just doing it all by yourself, that is not how God has created this world. There's a famous Harvard study that is, uh, I think it's like 80 years in the running now. It's a longitudinal study, which means it follows the same people over the course of their life. It's the longest of its kind. And the study is on a number of things, but one of which has to be, or is about happiness and what makes people happy. And one of the key findings of this study uh, is is, um, exactly what you find throughout scripture which is that we are not created to be alone. And the happiest people in this world are people who have a community and people who are surrounded by others and have relationships that are deep, relationships where people know you and you know them, relationships where people see you when you're struggling and come along and swoop you up. This is a piece of what this longitudinal study finds. It is what God says in Genesis 2 when he says it's not good that you're alone and is exactly what Elijah is experiencing here in 1 Kings 19. And the truth of the matter is that Elijah is not alone. What you may not know is even before this, he's not alone. In chapter 18, he meets up with a prophet named Obadiah. And this guy, Obadiah, is a prophet of Yahweh too. And Obadiah even tells him in just the page before this, in chapter 18, verse 13, has it not been told to you, Elijah, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of Yahweh? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets. I hid a hundred prophets, right? There's all these other prophets out there, Elijah, he's telling him. You are not alone, is what he's telling him. And then there's the servant, and then there's Elisha, and then there's the 7,000, and then most importantly, there is God himself who is present in Elijah's life, right? We can often know things are true and feel something different. My guess is you've read Romans 8 or heard it any number of times in which Paul says the following words. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, none of this, he says. None of this separates us from God. There is no chasm sitting between me and Christ, is what he's saying. There's no chasm sitting between me and the God of the universe. And instead, he goes on, he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. That is powerful. And it's one thing to know it. (laughs) And then it's a whole other thing to feel it. Sometimes when you don't feel it, that's when you need, in a real kind of way, community. (laughs) That's when you need the church. 
That's when you need God in the flesh in a community of believers. Uh, for our high school students going off to college, or college students coming home for the summer uh, who are going to go back to college, or just simply people going out into the world, one of the best pieces of advice that I could give you is when you go out, find a good church home. Find good Christian believers who will support you in the tough times. Because if you want to find God, you should seek out God's people. And this is how Elijah is answered here in his own loneliness. And so my charge to you today would be to build community. Don't just wait for it to come to you. Don't wait for the bad times to hit and and for you to need it. Actively pursue it. Find people in your life that you start investing in on a regular basis and that you reach out to and you keep close. So that when the tough times do hit, you're ready. And there's a safety net of people waiting for you. The second thing I'd say is build a spiritual house within yourself, a a spiritual vitality, a relationship with God that is real and passionate. So that in those times where you may feel alone, you know that the God of the universe is still holding you in his hands. He's still got you. And he will walk you from one day to the next to the next. And the last thing is that I want you to start building bridges to those people in your neighborhood or uh, at your work or at your school or those people who are around you who need that community and who need a God. Because I assure you, If there's one thing that is going to draw them to Christ, it is a sense of belonging. It is a sense that they are seen, that they are heard, that they are understood, that they are loved. And if we can produce that here, and if we can draw people into that, this will be a powerful place. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we come, your children, seeking your face. You are a good, good Father. And you love to lavish your gifts upon us. And you love to smile down upon us. And you love, like a good Father, to look on us with pride in those times of our achievement and greatness when all seems to be right. And then God, like a good father, you mourn with us and your heart breaks when you see us alone and lonely. And God, you send people to be with us that we might not be alone. And you call us to community, to love one another well. God, I pray this morning for the people who are listening. Lord, if there is someone who feels alone, may they seek out community and may they seek out you. May they not only know that you are present and that they are not alone, may they feel it. May they know in their bones that you are present 
and that your presence is enough. And may we come alongside of them and support them and love them. God, we thank you for your presence. You did not see fit to leave us all alone in this world, but you sent your son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh to be with us. And God, the very last thing that is said in the book of Matthew is that you will be with us even to the end of the age. You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. And for that, we give you thanks. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing one final song. If you've got something on your heart and you want to pray with me, I would love to pray with you. If you need a friend today, I'd love to be your friend. (laughs) If you need somebody to talk to, uh, I would love to, and I know there are any number of other people who would love that as well. Let's sing together.